Section 27 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cherley. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 4, by James Boswell, Section 27. To James Boswell, Esquire. Dear Sir, your anxiety about my health is very friendly, and very agreeable with your general kindness. I have indeed had a very frightful blow. On the seventeenth of last month, about three in the morning, as near as I can guess, I perceived myself almost totally deprived of speech. I had no pain. My organs were so obstructed that I could say no, but could scarcely say yes. I wrote the necessary directions, for it pleased God to spare my hand, and sent for Dr. Heberden and Dr. Brocklesby. Between the time in which I discovered my own disorder, and that in which I sent for the doctors, I had, I believe, in spite of my surprise and solicitude, a little sleep, and nature began to renew its operations. They came, and gave the directions which the disease required, and from that time I have been continually improving in articulation. I can now speak, but the nerves are weak, and I cannot continue discourse long. But strength, I hope, will return. The physicians consider me as cured. I was last Sunday at church. Footnote. Miss Burney, calling on him the next morning, offered to make his tea. He had given her his own large armchair, which was too heavy for her to move to the table. "'Sir,' quoth she, "'I am in the wrong chair.' "'It is so difficult,' cried he with quickness, "'for anything to be wrong that belongs to you, "'that it can only be I that am in the wrong chair "'to keep you from the right one.'" End of footnote. On Tuesday I took an airing to Hampstead, and dined with the club, where Lord Palmerston was proposed, and, against my opinion, was rejected. Footnote. His lordship was soon after chosen, and is now a member of the club. Boswell. He was father of the future Prime Minister, who was born in the following year. End of footnote. I designed to go next week with Mr. Langton to Rochester, where I purposed to stay about ten days, and then try some other air. I have many kind invitations. Your brother has very frequently inquired after me, most of my friends have, indeed, been very attentive. Footnote. He wrote on June 23rd, What man can do for man has been done for me. Murphy says that, visiting him during illness, he found him reading Dr. Watson's chemistry. Articulating with difficulty, he said, From this book, he who knows nothing may learn a great deal and he who knows will be pleased to find his knowledge recalled to his mind in a manner highly pleasing. End of footnote. Thank dear Lord Hales for his present. I hope you found at your return everything gay and prosperous, and your lady, in particular, quite recovered and confirmed. Pay her my respects. I am, dear sir, your most humble servant, Samuel Johnson, London, July 3rd, 1783. To Mrs. Lucy Porter in Litchfield. Dear Madam, The account which you give of your health is but melancholy. May it please God to restore you. 
My disease affected my speech, and still continues in some degree to obstruct my utterance. My voice is distinct enough for a while, but the organs, being still weak, are quickly weary. But in other respects I am, I think, rather better than I have lately been, and can let you know my state without the help of any other hand. In the opinion of my friends, and in my own, I am gradually mending. The physicians consider me as cured, and I had leave, four days ago, to wash the cantharides from my head. Last Tuesday I dined at the club. I am going next week into Kent, and purpose to change the air frequently this summer. Whether I shall wander so far as Staffordshire, I cannot tell. I should be glad to come. Return my thanks to Mrs. Cobb and Mr. Pearson, and all that have shown attention to me. Let us, my dear, pray for one another, and consider our sufferings as notices mercifully given us to prepare ourselves for another state. I live now but in a melancholy way. My old friend, Mr. Levitt, is dead, who lived with me in the house, and was useful and companionable. Mrs. Desmoulins has gone away, and Mrs. Williams is so much decayed that she can add little to another's gratifications. The world passes away, and we are passing with it, but there is, doubtless, another world which will endure forever. Let us all fit ourselves for it. I am, etc., Samuel Johnson, London, July 5th, 1783. Such was the general vigour of his constitution that he recovered from this alarming and severe attack with wonderful quickness, so that in July he was able to make a visit to Mr. Langton at Rochester, where he passed about a fortnight, and made little excursions as easily as at any time of his life. Footnote. July 23rd. I have been thirteen days at Rochester, and am just now returned. I came back by water, in a common boat twenty miles for a shilling, and when I landed at Billingsgate, I carried my budget myself to Cornhill before I could get a coach, and was not much incommoded. Murphy says that Johnson visited Oxford this summer. Perhaps he was misled by a passage in the Piozzi letters where Johnson is made to write, At Oxford I have just left Wheeler. For left, no doubt, should be read lost. Wheeler died on July 22nd of this year. End of footnote. In August he went as far as the neighbourhood of Salisbury to heal. Footnote. This house would be interesting to Johnson, as in it Charles the Second, for whom he had an extraordinary partiality, lay hid for some days after the Battle of Worcester. Clarendon describes it as a house that stood alone from neighbours and from any highway. Charles was lodged in a little room which had been made since the beginning of the troubles for the concealment of delinquents. End of footnote. The seat of William Bowles, Esquire, a gentleman whom I have heard him praise for exemplary religious order in his family. Footnote. I told Dr. Johnson I had heard that Mr. Bowles was very much delighted with the expectation of seeing him, and he answered me, He is so delighted that it is shocking. It is really shocking to see how high are his expectations. I asked him why, and he said, why, if any man is expected to take a leap of twenty yards, and does actually take one of ten, everybody will be disappointed, though ten yards may be more than any other man ever leaped. On October ninth, he wrote, 
Two nights ago Mr. Burke sat with me a long time. We had both seen Stonehenge this summer for the first time. End of footnote. In his diary I find a short but honourable mention of this visit. August 28th, I came to heal without fatigue. I am entertained quite to my mind. To Dr. Brocklesby, Heal, near Salisbury, August 29th, 1783. Dear Sir, Without appearing to want a just sense of your kind attention, I cannot omit to give an account of the day which seemed to appear in some sort perilous. I rose at five and went out at six, and having reached Salisbury about nine, went forward a few miles in my friend's chariot. Footnote. Salisbury is eighty-two miles from Cornhill by the old coach road. Johnson seems to have been nearly fifteen hours on the journey. End of footnote. I was no more wearied with the journey, though it was a high-hung, rough coach, than I should have been forty years ago. We shall now see what air will do. The country is all a plain, and the house in which I am, so far as I can judge from my window, for I write before I have left my chamber, is sufficiently pleasant. Be so kind as to continue your attention to Mrs. Williams. It is a great consolation to the well, and still greater to the sick, that they find themselves not neglected. And I know that you will be desirous of giving comfort, even where you have no great hope of giving help. Since I wrote the former part of the letter, I find that by the course of the post I cannot send it before the 31st. I am, etc., Samuel Johnson. While he was here, he had a letter from Dr. Brocklesby, acquainting him with the death of Mrs. Williams, which affected him a good deal. Footnote. August 13th, 1783. I am now broken with disease without the alleviation of familiar friendship or domestic society. I have no middle state between clamour and silence, between general conversation and self-tormenting solitude. Levitt is dead, and poor Williams is making haste to die. August 20th. This has been a day of great emotion. The office of the communion of the sick has been performed in poor Mrs. Williams' chamber. Poor Williams has, I hope, seen the end of her afflictions. She acted with prudence, and she bore with fortitude. She has left me. Thou thy weary worldly task hast done. Home art gone, and tan thy wages. Cymbeline. Act Four, Scene Two. Had she had good humour and prompt elocution, her universal curiosity and comprehensive knowledge would have made her the delight of all that knew her. End of footnote. Though for several years her temper had not been complacent, she had valuable qualities, and her departure left a blank in his house. Footnote. Johnson described in 1756 such a companion as he found in Mrs. Williams. He quotes Pope's epitaph on Mrs. Corbett, and continues, I have always considered this as the most valuable of all Pope's epitaphs. The subject of it is a character, not discriminated by any shining or eminent peculiarities, yet that which really makes, though not the splendor, the felicity of life, and that which every wise man will choose for his final and lasting companion in the languor of age in the quiet of privacy, 
when he departs, weary and disgusted, from the ostentatious, the volatile, and the vain. Of such a character, which the dull overlook and the gay despise, it was fit that the value should be made known, and the dignity established. End of footnote. Upon this occasion he, according to his habitual course of piety, composed a prayer. I shall here insert a few particulars concerning him, with which I have been favoured by one of his friends. Footnote. I conjecture that Mr. Bowles is the friend. The account follows close on the visit to his house, and contains a mention of Johnson's attendance at a lecture at Salisbury. End of footnote. He had once conceived the design of writing the life of Oliver Cromwell. Footnote. A writer in Notes and Queries says, Mr. Bowles had married a descendant of Oliver Cromwell, viz. Dinah, the fourth daughter of Sir Thomas Frankland, and highly valued himself upon this connection with the protector. He adds that Mr. Bowles was an active Whig. End of footnote saying that he thought it must be highly curious to trace his extraordinary rise to the supreme power from so obscure a beginning. He at length laid aside his scheme on discovering that all that can be told of him is already in print, and that it is impracticable to procure any authentic information in addition to what the world is already possessed of. Footnote. Mr. Malone observes, This, however, was certainly a mistake, as appears from the memoirs published by Mr. Noble, had Johnson been furnished with the materials which the industry of that gentleman has procured, and with others which, it is believed, are yet preserved in manuscript, he would, without doubt, have produced a most valuable and curious history of Cromwell's life. Boswell. End of footnote. He had likewise projected, but at what part of his life is not known, a work to show how small a quantity of real fiction there is in the world, and that the same images, with very little variation, have served all the authors who have ever written. His thoughts in the latter part of his life were frequently employed on his deceased friends. He often muttered these or such like sentences, Poor man, and then he died. Speaking of a certain literary friend, He is a very pompous, puzzling fellow, said he, he lent me a letter once that somebody had written to him, no matter what it was about, but he wanted to have the letter back, and expressed a mighty value for it. He hoped it was to be met with again. He would not lose it for a thousand pounds. I laid my hand upon it soon afterwards and gave it him. I believe, he said, I was very glad to have met with it. Oh, then he did not know that it signified anything. So you see— when the letter was lost, it was worth a thousand pounds, and when it was found, it was not worth a farthing. The style and character of his conversation is pretty generally known. It was certainly conducted in conformity with a precept of Lord Bacon, but it is not clear, I apprehend, that this conformity was either perceived or intended by Johnson. The precept alluded to is as follows. In all kinds of speech, either pleasant, grave, severe, or ordinary, it is convenient to speak leisurely, and rather drollingly than hastily, because hasty speech confounds the memory, and oftentimes, besides the unseemliness, drives the man either to stammering, 
a non-plus, or harping on that which should follow, whereas a slow speech confirmeth the memory, addeth a conceit of wisdom to the hearers, besides a seemliness of speech and countenance. Dr. Johnson's method of conversation was certainly calculated to excite attention, and to amuse and instruct, as it happened, without wearying or confusing his company. He was always most perfectly clear and perspicuous, and his language was so accurate and his sentences so neatly constructed that his conversation might have been all printed without any correction. At the same time, it was easy and natural. The accuracy of it had no appearance of labour, constraint, or stiffness. He seemed more correct than others by the force of habit and the customary exercises of his powerful mind. Footnote. When I took up his life of Cowley, he made me put it away to talk. I could not help remarking how very like he is to his writing, and how much the same thing it was to hear him or to read him, but that nobody could tell that without coming to Streatham, for his language was generally imagined to be laboured and studied instead of the mere common flow of his thoughts. Very true, said Mrs. Thrale. He writes and talks with the same ease and in the same manner. What a different account is this from that given by Macaulay. When he talked, he clothed his wit and his sense in forcible and natural expressions. As soon as he took his pen in his hand to write for the public, his style became systematically vicious. End of footnote. He spoke often in praise of French literature. The French are excellent in this, he would say. They have a book on every subject. From what he had seen of them, he denied them the praise of superior politeness, and mentioned, with very visible disgust, the custom they have of spitting on the floors of their apartments. Footnote. Hume said, The French have more real politeness, and the English the better method of expressing it. By real politeness I mean softness of temper, and a sincere inclination to oblige and be serviceable, which is very conspicuous in this nation not only among the high, but the low, insomuch that the porters and coachmen here are civil, and that not only to gentlemen, but likewise among themselves. End of footnote. This, said the doctor, is as gross a thing as can well be done, and one wonders how any man, or set of men, can persist in so offensive a practice for a whole day together. One should expect that, that the first effort toward civilization would remove it even among savages. Baxter's Reasons of the Christian Religion, he thought, contained the best collection of the evidences of the divinity of the Christian system. Chemistry was always an interesting pursuit with Dr. Johnson. Whilst he was in Wiltshire, he attended some experiments that were made by a physician at Salisbury on the new kinds of air. Footnote. September 22, 1783. The chemical philosophers have discovered a body, which I have forgotten but will inquire, which dissolved by an acid emits a vapour lighter than the atmospherical air. This vapour is caught, among other means, by tying a bladder compressed upon the body in which the dissolution is formed. The vapour rising swells the bladder and fills it. The body was iron filings, the acid, sulfuric acid, and the vapour, nitrogen. The other new kinds of air were the gases discovered by Priestley. 
End of footnote. In the course of the experiments, frequent mention being made of Dr. Priestley, Dr. Johnson knit his brows, and in a stern manner inquired, Why do we hear so much of Dr. Priestley? Footnote. I do not wonder at Johnson's displeasure when the name of Dr. Priestley was mentioned, for I know no writer who has been suffered to publish more pernicious doctrines. I shall instance only three. First, materialism, by which mind is denied to human nature, which, if believed, must deprive us of every elevated principle. Secondly, necessity, or the doctrine that every action, whether good or bad, is included in an unchangeable and unavoidable system, a notion utterly subversive of moral government. Thirdly, that we have no reason to think that the future world, which, as he is pleased to inform us, will be adapted to our merely improved nature, will be materially different from this, which, if believed, would sink wretched mortals into despair, as they could no longer hope for the rest that remaineth for the people of God. Hebrews 4, 9 or for that happiness which is revealed to us as something beyond our present conceptions, but would feel themselves doomed to a continuation of the uneasy state under which they now groan. I say nothing of the petulant intemperance with which he dares to insult the venerable establishments of his country. As a specimen of his writings, I shall quote the following passage, which appears to me equally absurd and impious, and which might have been retorted upon him by the men who were prosecuted for burning his house. I cannot, says he, as a necessarian, meaning necessitarian, hate any man, because I consider him as being, in all respects, just what God has made him to be, and also as doing, with respect to me, nothing but what he was expressly designed and appointed to do, God being the only cause, and men nothing more than the instruments in his hands to execute all his pleasure. The Reverend Dr. Parr, in a late tract, appears to suppose that Dr. Johnson not only endured but almost solicited an interview with Dr. Priestley. In justice to Dr. Johnson, I declare my firm belief that he never did. My illustrious friend was particularly resolute in not giving countenance to men whose writings he considered as pernicious to society. I was present at Oxford when Dr. Price, even before he had rendered himself so generally obnoxious by his zeal for the French Revolution, came into a company where Johnson was, who instantly left the room. Much more would he have reprobated Dr. Priestley. Whoever wishes to see a perfect delineation of this literary jack-of-all-trades may find it in an ingenious tract entitled A Small Whole Length of Dr. Priestley printed for Rivingtons in St. Paul's Churchyard, Boswell. End of footnote. He was very properly answered, Sir, because we are indebted to him for these important discoveries. On this, Dr. Johnson appeared well content, and replied, Well, well, I believe we are, and let every man have the honour he has merited. A friend was one day, about two years before his death, struck with some instance of Dr. Johnson's great candour. "'Well, sir,' said he, "'I will always say that you are a very candid man.' "'Will you?' replied the doctor. "'I doubt, then, you will be very singular. "'But indeed, sir,' continued he, "'I look upon myself to be a man very much misunderstood. 
I am not an uncandid, nor am I a severe man. I sometimes say more than I mean, in jest, and people are apt to believe me serious. However, I am more candid than I was when I was younger. As I know more of mankind, I expect less of them, and I am ready now to call a man a good man upon easier terms than I was formerly. Footnote. Burke said, I have learnt to think better of mankind. End of footnote. On his return from Heel, he wrote to Dr. Burney, I came home on the 18th at noon to a very disconsolate house. Footnote. He wrote to his servant Frank from Heel on September 16th, As Thursday, the 18th, is my birthday, I would have a little dinner got, and would have you invite Mrs. Desmoulins, Mrs. Davis, that was about Mrs. Williams, and Mr. Allen and Mrs. Gardiner. End of footnote. You and I have lost our friends. Footnote. Dr. Burney had just lost Mr. Bewley, the broom gentleman, and Mr. Crisp. End of footnote. But you have more friends at home. My domestic companion is taken from me. She is much missed, for her acquisitions were many, and her curiosity universal, so that she partook of every conversation. Footnote. He wrote of her to Mrs. Montague. Her curiosity was universal, her knowledge was very extensive, and she sustained forty years of misery with steady fortitude. Thirty years and more she had been my companion, and her death has left me very desolate. This letter brought to a close his quarrel with Mrs. Montague. End of footnote. I am not well enough to go much out, and to sit and eat or fast alone is very wearisome. I always mean to send my compliments to all the ladies. End of section 27 Recording by Charlie, B.C., Canada